This is the ninth and the final sermon on Matthews 24 and 25. And I must say, I need to clear up a few things that were said while I was away. (laughs) For example, it was mentioned that perhaps I would preach from the top of the scaffold. I'm not even going to climb it. (laughs) So you can put that one away. Thanks so much, Chris. (laughs) It's so great to have such a helpful staff. (laughs) Let's see him sweat. (laughs) That's their motto. Also, Allie did win the lottery when it came to the sermons on heaven and hell. She got heaven. With me, you get hell. This has been a very interesting sermon to prepare for. Uh, This is the fourth sermon I've written in the past week on this topic. And the first three were awful. They were really horrible. This one is like a Salvador Dali painting. It's a stream of consciousness kind of sermon. Um, So bear with me. But I begin with a story of a preacher who was preaching a sermon on heaven and hell one day. And so he began by saying, all of you who wish to go to heaven, please stand up. And everybody stood up. He says, be seated. Then he said, all of you who wish to go to hell, please stand up. And he stood in the middle and nobody stood. Finally, one man stood. Chris, be the man for me. And the pastor was kind of surprised, and he said, you, you really want to go to hell? And the response was, well, no, not really. I just didn't want to see you standing there all alone. <laughs> so let me set the stage of what's going on as we look at uh, basically one verse, though there'll be many scriptures mentioned, but one verse in particular from Matthew 25. Let me begin. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He wasn't there that often. Most of his ministry time was spent at Capernaum, at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. That was basically his earthly headquarters. He has just left the Temple Mount, heading through the Mount of Olives, over the top, and down into Bethany on the eastern side of Jerusalem. Bethany was the home of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. It's the place Jesus and the disciples stayed while they were in Jerusalem. As far as we know, this was the last time Jesus was in the temple. It's now just two days prior to the Passover. That's the Passover before which Jesus was arrested, tried in a mock trial, crucified, and dies on the cross. He is nearing in our text today, the end of a rather lengthy conversation with his disciples. They have asked him questions about those last days, those days when the Son of Man will return. The Son of Man was a euphemism for Jesus himself, the Messiah. He has been very responsive to them. The last section of Matthew 25 contains Jesus' teaching about the judgment, identifying of the sheep, those on his right, 
who believe him and follow him, and identifying the goats, those on his left, who do not believe in him and do not follow him. This is today's primary text. Jesus, the Son of Man, speaks to the goats at judgment. And in Matthew 25, 41, he says this, Then he, that is the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the end of the text. Doesn't it stink? How horrible to be a goat. Now, here in New England, we have a goat. Tom Brady is the goat. Greatest of all time. It's not that kind of goat. This is just a goat. On the day of judgment, it will be horrible to be on Jesus' left and to be a goat. And it will be easy for Jesus to recognize who is a sheep and who is a goat. The standard of judgment will be how we lived the life he gave to us. How we lived as people who received his grace and mercy. How graceful and merciful are we? How are people helped and cared for by us? It's a standard relatively sparsely taught these days. And struggles with evangelicals who seem to want to think, if you just say the Jesus words, you're in, that's it, done, complete. Enjoy the life. Which makes us mere consumers of the grace of God. We're meant to be conduits of it, people through whom the grace of God flows. Which is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer things like, forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who debt, sin, trespass against us. It's a partnership with God. He's the major partner. But we're not to be silent ones. We're to be full participants in his word. What did we do is important. James, Jesus' half-brother, wrote about this in his letter. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says, James 1.22. Jesus was clear. His followers are to follow his example. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 10.45. Even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus started way at the top, beyond the scaffold. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only begotten Son of God. And he emptied himself of all of that, gave it over so he could come here and serve and rescue and bless and include and make a place for every human being that lives. Our life as Christians is not judged on our biblical knowledge, though Bible knowledge certainly helps a great deal. Our life as Christians is not judged on our theology, though sound, clear theology and understanding of the fullness of the Bible, the holistic teachings of the Bible, is incredibly helpful. Our life as Christians is not judged on whether or not we've prayed the sinner's prayer, though praying the sinner's prayer is a great starting place because, after all, 
we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Our life as Christians is judged on what we do with and for people who are in need. The hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner. What did we do with them? Did we feed? Did we bring water to quench their thirst? Did we invite them into our place? Did we clothe them? Did we visit and care for them? These are not my words. This is not Pastor Craig making this up. These are the words of Jesus from Matthew 25, 35, and 36. One might ask, isn't this salvation by works? Absolutely not. It is not. These are the doings of those who really believe in God and his Son. These are the doings of those who really allow the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, who really follow Jesus. This is what those people do. These are the doings of genuine Christians, personally and corporately. These doings authenticate our surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord of our life. They don't save us. They demonstrate that we are saved, redeemed, transformed. These are the doings of Jesus, and these are to be the doings of Jesus in each of us. Tragically, there are people who have prayed the sinner's prayer but helped no one. Tragically, there are people who study the Bible faithfully and regularly but care for no one. Tragically, there are people who attend church regularly but visit no one who is in need. Tragically, there are people who give money but do not invest their life in meeting needs personally. And this breaks God's heart. And it should break the heart of his genuine people. Listen to what the Apostle Peter writes in his second letter, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone come to repentance. Now, repentance. Repentance is not merely sorrow for our failures and owning up to what we've done that's been wrong. That's a beginning place. Repentance is turning around and going another way. If I'm going this way, and that's not leading me towards Christ-likeness, I need to repent. And I may need to turn just a degree, or 45, 90, 180. Whatever it is, repentance is an act of behavior. It is doing something that we should stop doing so that we could do something that's the right thing to do and heading in the right direction. Repentance is turning from lying toward telling the truth. Repentance is turning from selfishness to self-sacrifice. Repentance is turning from self-indulgence to sharing. Repentance is turning from narcissism to generosity. Repentance is turning from anything that is not following Jesus to following Jesus. Jesus looks at those on his left, the goats, and he says to them, in essence, you really didn't repent. You may have said some words, 
but it never showed up in how you lived. Jesus said this in another way in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you begin to see? It's about doing. It's about behavior. It's about involvement personally in the lives of the people around us. And it's about moving towards Jesus in our own lives. Not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's an implication with that. There's another kingdom. There's another place. And that leads me to the point of the other place, which is what this sermon was meant to be about. Which in the English language is called hell. Let me take just a few moments to comment on the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek and the word that is translated in our English Bibles as hell. Throughout the Old Testament, we find the word sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It's used 65 times. Nearly half of the time it is translated hell. The other half it is translated the grave. Occasionally it is mentioned with personal pain and suffering, but rarely is it mentioned with punishment. Sheol is always about separation and no longer being seen. In the New Testament, we also find the word Sheol as well. After all, these were Hebrew people. And when the New Testament was written, primarily in the Greek, it included Aramaic and some Hebrew language as well. But more often, we find the word Hades, H-A-D-E-S. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. Hades was a Greek god whose name meant the unseen. Another word in the New Testament used 12 times is Gehenna. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. It comes from the Hebrew Gi Hinnom, literally meaning the Valley of Hinnom. This was a valley where sacrifices were made, sacrifices of people, in particular children. Listen to what happened there from Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals, which were Canaanite gods. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Gehenna became a metaphor for eternal damnation and punishment, the image of hell in the New Testament. Gehenna is the word found in what Jesus says today in the text that was read earlier and that will be read again in just a moment. With that literary context... Let me present Jesus' words and give a brief theology of the other place, hell. Remember what Jesus said to the goats? Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. Are you still with me or is this troubling? Yes and yes. 
Jesus is saying four things in this one verse. The first is this. There's a departure. There's a departure. A separation. A complete separation from the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is probably best examined and uh, illustrated by looking at the contrast this is in the scriptures given to those who believe and truly follow. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm with you always to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. But here there's a departure. In his letter to the believers in Rome, the apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 38, 39, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In contrast to, there's a departure. In quoting Deuteronomy 31.8, the author of Hebrews writes, God has said, I will never leave you. Never will I forsake you, Hebrews 13.5. But here in the final judgment, Jesus speaks of a separation for those who neither believe in nor genuinely follow him. He says, depart from me. The place is not stated, but the separation is clear. The goats will be going somewhere where God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not present. We know no such place today. And the goats will be somewhere where God's people are not present. We know no such place today. So first, there's a departure. Second, there's a curse. People's personal choice to neither believe in nor follow Jesus brings a consequence. It's a bad consequence. It's a curse. It's a self-inflicted curse. Third, there's an eternal fire, certainly implying a continual discomfort at best and most likely a torment. Not a fun place. Not a place which I hear often from people who don't believe yet in Jesus, where I'll be with my friends forever. And there is a place clearly implied, but not specifically identified by location. But note this, the place we call hell was not made for people. It's not made for us. The place God made, Ali preached about last week. The place we call hell was made for the devil and his angels. So here's hell, a place without God and without good or godly people. It's a place of consequence for people who do not believe and choose not to follow Jesus Christ, even if they say they believe. It's a place of torment. It's a place made for the devil and his angels. It's the other place. It's hell. Okay, Pastor Craig, what do we do with that? How does that help me this week? Well, don't do things to go there. There's more. Before he became president, 
Calvin Coolidge was a vice president, and as such, he presided over the Senate of the United States. There was a passionate debate underway, and the story is told that one senator angrily told another to go straight to hell. Some things haven't changed in Washington for a long time. The offended senator complained to Coolidge, who was presiding. Calvin looked up from the book that he had been leafing through while listening to the debate, and he said, I've been looking through the rule book. You don't have to go. (laughs) He is so right. You don't have to go. It's not intended to go there. We are not made to go there. But here's the truth. Gravity holds us all. You're being held by it now. Whether you believe in gravity or not is beside the point. You're being held by it. If, we, if gravity is removed, we will no longer be held. The consequence of gravity being removed is nothing but chaos and trouble. Astronauts go through years of training to deal with a gravity-free environment. You learn to you have to live in a whole new way, and it has to usually be in a tight place, like a capsule. Here's the truth about God. God is always present with people. The theological or technical term for this is God is omnipresent. God is never not present. Work that sentence out. He's always been present. The Christian has become aware of God's presence because the Christian receives God's personal presence in Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to transform their lives. The not yet Christian is not aware of God's presence in any personal direct way. God is still present, however. Look at Psalm 139. God's presence is also protective. God's protective presence includes not only those who have received Jesus, it also includes those who have yet to receive Jesus, and it includes those who have even chosen to reject Jesus. God continues, I hope someday God rolls out whatever it is, the tape, the whatever, to show all the times he intervened in my life and I didn't even know I needed an intervention. Things being protected from. It'll be a fascinating thing to watch that and see how God was always there. The picture and the poem about footprints in the sand is just one example of how that probably works. Hell is where God is not present, like no gravity. And therefore, God's protection is no longer available. The consequence is unfettered chaos, agony, and torment. Hell is not a place to party with bad people. It's a place to be isolated, separated, alone. No connection, except perhaps to the devil and his angels. Not a pretty place. Another insight. 
Many times I've been asked, how can a loving God either create or allow hell to be the final place for any human being? Good question. My thoughts over the years can today be summed up with this response. By hell, God demonstrates his ultimate respect for human beings. By hell, God demonstrates his ultimate respect for human beings. God does not force his love upon us, nor his expectations of us. God clearly has declared he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. What God wants is a genuine relationship. You can read that again and again and again in the scriptures. Likewise, God does not prevent anyone from choosing hell for themselves by choosing not to believe in his son, nor to follow him. People go to hell as a consequence of their personal choice in responding to God's call in their life. They say no. I don't know where the lines are. I don't know how God works all of that. But I know this is what the Bible teaches. It's a consequence of choices that we make. Pastor John Hanna from the south side of Chicago said it most succinctly. Just as no one who is in heaven will be able to say, I put me there. So, no one who is ever in hell will be able to say, God put me there. If anyone is in heaven, God puts them there by his grace. If anyone is in hell, that's the choice they made. That's how it works. So dealing with hell is dealing with responsibility and opportunity to accept, follow, and become like Jesus the Christ. The other place is not our home. Our home is with God. Our home is with his Son who makes being with God the Father possible. Our home is with the Holy Spirit who indwells us so that we can become more like his son in how we behave and how we think, how we treat each other, how we do life together and personally. Pray with me. Holy Father, please... I know that you do this, but I pray it anyway. Continue to draw us to yourself and help us sitting here today, help us to help other people become believers and followers of Jesus. Not to avoid hell primarily, though that will be a consequence, but because the love of you and your Son and Spirit compel us to reach out in the mission you've given to us to win the lost and help the hurting. And help us to be an encouragement to one another to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ in whose name and whose name alone 
we pray. Amen.